with Morgan streaking. She's chipping the goalkeeper! The pay disparity between the men and women is, is just too large and, and we want to continue to fight. Uh, the generation of players before us fought and now it's our job to, to keep on fighting. The pay cap for the women's Major League Soccer players is 11 times less than the pay cap for men's Major League Soccer. 11 times. Rapino gets across it. listening to Give and Go with Rotas Wadera only on Girls Soccer Network. What is up everybody? I am your host Rotas Wadera and this is episode 52 of Give and Go. Thank you guys so so much for making the choice to listen to us at Girls Soccer Network. Again, we've got you covered for everything near and dear in the world of women's soccer whether it's lifestyle news analysis, we got you covered. So check us out at www.girlssoccernetwork.com on Instagram at Girls Soccer Network and on Twitter at Girls Soccer Net. Now, I understand it's been a little bit of a hiatus for us, but we are very, very happy to be back. A little bit of a summer break, but we've got a jam-packed episode for you today. Think of it as a little bit of a college preview into the upcoming season, which is going to kick off very shortly. On top of that, of course, we've got NWSL news. We've got Ballon d'Or nominees to discuss. So, so much to get into. First, we have an interview with head coach Scott Juniper of the UC Irvine Anteaters over at in the Big West Conference. They're coming off one of the upsets of the year, probably the biggest upset in NCAA tournament history against the UCLA Bruins last year. So we're going to have a great conversation with him about that. And then Jenna Nyswanger of Florida State entering her senior year for the Seminoles and finally getting to play more of an attacking role. So we're going to get, in, get into all that with her as well. So without further ado, let's bring you first... The Scott Juniper interview, which again was an absolutely fantastic conversation. We really got into the nitty gritty of what it means to build a program at a mid-major, what he loves about the school and the kind of attacking play that they want to have at UC Irvine, along with how you build on what they did last year. So again, here's the interview, guys. Enjoy. We are with uh, Coach Scott Juniper of UC Irvine Anteaters. Coach, how are you and how are you feeling about the team heading into this season? I'm really good. Yeah, thanks for having me. I uh yeah, I'm a I'm an optimist this time of year for sure. Always optimistic by nature. So I can't remember a season that I've gone into not feeling really good about it. Uh but this one in particular, we got a lot of really good pieces, got a lot of really good uh experience coming back. A few exciting new players were dropping into the mix. So yeah, we we're uh yeah, super optimistic. Yeah, so you're coming off, you know, one of the best seasons in school history while also pulling off the biggest upset in NCAA tournament history. What are you and your team focusing on, you know, to build off of last year and take this program to even bigger heights? Yeah, it's a real balance. It's trying to <clears throat> trying to take all the positives from that season and all the experiences and, and, and roll that into this this adventure, but also making sure that it's a new adventure, that we're not just trying to recreate something. You know, it's like you might have been on the greatest vacation ever, uh, you know, and you try and go back to the same place, the same hotel at the same time of year, three years later. And, you know, you're better off having just tried to go on a new adventure. So I think that's what we're trying to balance up, taking all the positives, but making sure that we uh, uh, we keep it fresh and, uh, and make sure we're doing something new. 
when you mentioned earlier, you know, be, being able to bring back so many pieces, did you have any seniors last year? I feel like you're bringing back virtually everyone. Yeah, we are. I think we had, well, we had 11 players that were graduating, which I think is a, you know, it's a real testament to the program when you have 11 players go right the way through, particularly when you've gone through some of the things that we had to go through in those years. So there was 11, uh, six of them, or actually five of them graduated on time. Um, one of them signed uh, professionally with Club America in Mexico. Um, so she had one year of eligibility and she decided not to use that. And then there were the, the other five who were starters for us, played a ton of minutes. And they all they all slowly came to the same decision in different ways. So five of, we're going to have five fifth-year seniors with a lot of experience. Um, so, yeah. So how do you handle, you know, developing or bringing that continuity from last year into this year and handling things like team chemistry? Yeah, team chemistry is a, a, a big one for us. One thing that was fairly unique with our team last year, we we never settled on who the captains were going to be. So all the success we had last year was with a team um, without a named captain. So our leadership was really interesting. It was it was um, it was spread right the way through the team uh, across different positions and through different classes, and um, it worked for that team. Um, so we've got this diverse sort of leadership structure, which is something new. And we've kind of gone with that again. It seems, uh, it seems to have worked. It, it doesn't, um, it doesn't disproportionately overload one or two players with those kind of responsibilities. Um, and you just hope, uh, and we encourage that anyone can step up and lead. Um, so that's a little bit of our chemistry. I think we've got a lot of like-minded players, which is a key to the chemistry too. Mm-hmm. Um, ton of them uh, have got their eye on playing professionally when they when they leave. So um, a lot of the pieces of, of of the way we train and the way we prepare is kind of driven by that sort of mindset. So we kind of recruited that mindset, if you like. And yeah, so I feel like we've got good chemistry right now. And where did the the idea of having multiple captains or not having a set captain come from? Because that's a certainly a very different approach from a lot of coaches and teams around the country. Yeah, we, we stumbled on it. Honestly, it wasn't anything, um, you know, that we studied. Uh, it was a gut instinct. I think growing up in England, I was used to having one captain, you know, and that was it. It was very, it was very clear. Um, and when I came to the US, I started, you know, running into situations where teams have one, two, three, four, uh, captains. And then what evolved a few years after that were, you know, you heard a lot more about a leadership council, you know, or a committee that would that would meet with the coaching staff. And that, and that grows your leadership model from two or three captains with an armband to five, six, seven players around, around a table discussing different things. Um, and we've used all of those structures, honestly. When we looked at the team last year, there it just wasn't an obvious, there weren't obvious single or two, three personalities um we had so much leadership so much personality that we felt that putting an, putting the captain's armband on one two or three players would have um almost sidelined the leadership qualities of others so we just chose to kind of blow up the um blow up what might be a little bit more conventional um and it worked for us so if it's working we, we, we're trying not to you know try not to fix it mm, for sure and in terms of Last year to this year, what style of play do you want the UC Irvine Anteaters to be known for? Or is it kind of game to game, depending on the matchups, depending on the teams that you face? 
Yeah, it's a great question because we do play a, a diverse range of opponents. Uh, we open up with Cal next week, so you're jumping from the you know straight straight into a Pac-12 opponent, um, where you know we have to we have to focus tactically on making sure that we don't let don't allow them to hurt us, right? So there's definitely a more defensive uh, mindset that we have to take um, versus a lot of our conference games where we we hope to be on the front foot, and uh, you know um, other people might preparing that way for us a little bit um but it doesn't matter whether we're you know our team sits off a little bit or we press high i think we're blue collar that's for sure that's definitely a big part of our personality we uh we don't shy away from hard work we don't we don't tolerate um uh big ego players that that, that think they don't have to do the same as everybody else we defend we press with with 11 players whether it's in our half or in, in our opponent's half um and we're also a team that wants to go forward it's written in our written in our team culture, like go forward. We want to be a team that doesn't matter where we start the start the attack from. We want to fully commit to attacking teams. We want to be dynamic and we want to give our players um, enough freedom to make decisions on the field. So it'd be those things really, blue collar, a team that goes forward, but um, a program that allows players to make decisions on the field. Awesome. So switching gears a little bit, you yourself have done quite a bit of research on the effective teams between England and America. Do you feel you bring a different perspective to coaching based on the research that you've done? And, and what are some of the biggest things that you've noticed uh, between America and England? I think there are loads of differences, but more and more there's that, that I see the commonalities. I think when you start to see the way the game is growing in, in, in Europe, I think, um, uh, you know, there's, when you when you have all the different international influences that are now blended through different countries, uh, the commonalities come out. You know, England just won the Euros with a mm -hmm. uh, with a coach from the Netherlands, um, and uh, you know, I think so. Yes, there are differences. I mean, the biggest difference is really in the structure of, um, particularly football in the UK for women. Um, the the growth is there's a sharp steep growth because established professional clubs are now growing a women's team. Mm -hmm. So when you take a club that's been around for a hundred years, they have a hundred years worth of infrastructure, coaching infrastructure, um, a, an existing fan base, a community, a stickiness to that, to that brand. Um, so you can grow a women's team in that environment uh, in a different way that you see the two professional clubs in California establish themselves and they've done an incredible job up in LA with Angel City and the San Diego Wave that they're, they're starting from zero with no infrastructure so that's incredibly impressive I'm not sure that would work in the UK um, so there are certain benefits to, to either model um, but those are the big differences the structure I think the way the game is played is getting more similar and I think the commonalities are, uh, are growing absolutely yeah like United coming into the picture in like two, three years and already being in that top four in, in the WSL, I think is pretty interesting already. One other thing in terms of American versus England, I think that I've noticed is the level of technical play in England versus the level of athleticism here in America. Is that something you've noticed as well? Or do you feel like that's not really something that you've noticed? It was certain, that was certainly a big um, a big differentiator 10, 15 years ago when I moved to the States, which is more than 15 years ago now, um, you know, that definitely was a 
differentiate and it was tough for European players to land in the US and and, and catch up to the, the the athleticism and the demands and the pace of the game. Um, I think that's less and less now. Uh, we just recruited a young lady from Southampton Football Club um, and she landed at LAX yesterday. Uh, she hasn't practiced with us yet. We've got some paperwork to do. Um, but we, anticip- we, we anticipate that she's going to be one of our most athletic players. Um, so I think that gap's closing. Um, I think the sports science in the UK around women's football is growing really, really fast. Um, so, you know, I think that will start from younger and younger ages. And then over time, I think that that advantage maybe that, that, that the US and US players might have on that on that side of things might, might start to, you know, reduce a little bit. But we'll see, right? Because the US are going to be playing uh, England in oh, October, I think. Yeah, it's sold out already, right, at Wembley? Amazing. Yeah, it's awesome. So. Yeah. That's going to be fun, especially after the Alex Morgan tea drinking. There's a bit of a rivalry that's been. <laughs> yeah, there's right. me. There's me literally drinking my tea as we're <laughs> as we're chatting. That was that was good timing. Yeah. So this is going to be 15 years for you now at UC Irvine, uh, right? So what is it about the school, the program that keeps you there? Because I'm sure at least one big college program has given you a call after last year's you know, results and tried to poach you away. So what is it about the school that keeps keeps you there? It's interesting. I get asked a lot, you know, when you, when you as a college coach, when you win a lot of games, people ask you those kind of questions quite quite often, particularly when, when you're at a school that is often referred to as a mid-major, right? I guess that's where, that's where you would classify us. Um, I always just invite those people to come spend a week. Come, come spend a week with us. Come and see where we work. Come and see the people that we work with. Come and learn a little bit more about the quality of the the, the school. Uh, um, I'll show you where the players live, and uh, then you tell me that there's a, a a better place out there for us to do what we do. Um, and I don't think there is. So it's it's not a difficult it's not a difficult thing to to continue to be uh, here at UC Irvine. Our players live in Newport Beach. Uh, we're one of the top public schools in America. Our training facilities are, you know, just grade A. We've we've just hosted the, you know, uh, the Rams NFL um, team for a couple of weeks, and if it's, we feel like if it's good enough for the Rams, um, you know, we're in, we're in great shape. So the other side of it is the human side of it. You know, my my, my wife and I are very happy here. Our kids are very happy here. Um, but it's still let you see how my women's soccer still allows me to compete at a very very high level. Um, we've got a supportive administration. Um, so all of that's great, you know, so we love it. And speaking of, you know, kind of the infrastructure that you have, you've coached at every level here in America, except for the NWSL. Is that something that would interest you down the line? Because we're starting to see all these college coaches, Mark Rikorian, Chris Petrozelli, Becky Burley, they've all gone to the league now yeah. um, after building programs. Is that something that would interest you down the line? I'm interested in all of it, honestly. I, I'm fascinated by all of it. I think the names that you mentioned and the real sort of legends of college coaching, and I've got a long, long way to go before, before uh, you know, I could, if, if I could achieve even close to what, what that group of coaches have done, I'll be very, very happy. Um, but I'm, yeah, I, I'm, I'm still very young in coaching. I was hired as a head coach when I was 29 years old. Um, so I was, I was very, very young, got a very, very early head start on it. So I feel like I got a, you know, I've got so many coaching adventures ahead of me. 
you know, if that includes professional soccer at some point, great. Um, I think the national team environment is uh, is exciting as well. Um, so, yeah, and I think uh, over the next 10, 15 years, I think the, the growth of the game globally is going to, is going to, um, going to continue to grow kind of at that exponential sort of rate now um, for the foreseeable future. So I think it's really exciting for the players. I think it's exciting for coaches as well. I think we're all, we're all going to have a, um, uh, uh, an interesting adventure as the, as the global game grows. Last question for you. Uh, what is your advice to all the young girls out there looking to make it to the next level, whether that be varsity, college, the pros? If I was to summarize it, it's, it's hard because there's so many, so many things they've got. They've got. I think there's a lot of good coaching out there at, at the youth levels. I would say seek out, seek out good coaches um, before you seek out a club. Um, I feel like the, you know, the nature of the coach is, is maybe the single most important piece of your development, not just the color of the uniform. Um, often those two things come together. Uh, so that's, that's great. But then over and above that, what we tell players that come to our camps and clinics is you've got to continue to enjoy the game. There are, there are more and more pressures on young players from lots of different, lots of different directions. And I think we see some players getting, getting burned out and, and buried a little bit with those pressures. Um, so we encourage them to, um, yeah, put, put your heart and soul into it. But if you, if you're not doing it with a, with a joyful spirit, then, uh, you're missing a big part of what this is all about. So uh, work hard, put yourself around good people and uh, enjoy every day of what you're doing. Again, that was head coach Scott Juniper of UC Irvine. A really awesome conversation, not just to talk about his his program and what they're building there, but also just talk about some of the differences between the game in England and America. He's been heavily involved in both. He's done a ton of research on both. So to get his expertise and his insight was really, really cool. And we're definitely looking to to get out to a game sometime this year now that the season's coming up. Absolutely looking forward to that. Now that we're into the college discussion, we're going to get into what I think could be a possible top 10. Maybe not the start of the year, right? Because the preseason rankings have come out and they pretty much kept it to what, where the teams were at last year rather than taking into account all who's returning and who's not. So that's kind of why I wanted to do a separate top 10 and, and do a little bit of a breakdown and see where we're at coming into the season or how the year might end based on scheduling and, and things like that. So let's get into it. Number one, you still have to start with the defending champions, Florida State. You know, Mark Krikorian made a shocking decision to leave the defending champs after 17 years with the school Three national championships, uh, an unprecedented move because college coaches don't do that after dominating for so long. You don't just leave. Um, it, it was under certainly mysterious circumstances. No one ever really knows what the exact reasoning is. Um, he is now gone to be the GM of the Washington Spirit, which we will definitely get into later because that's a huge, huge move. But getting back to Florida State, Mark Corian being out, who are they going to bring in? to replace fills such big shoes and the person for the job is going to be Brian Penske who 
again, in his own right, has been great over the last decade. Rebuilt the program at University of Maryland and at the University of Tennessee. So he's got his own pedigree. He's won National Coach of the Year as well. He's coached in the ACC before going back to his days with the University of Maryland, who are now in the Big Ten. But when he was there, they were in the ACC. So he has familiarity with the conference. He knows exactly how tough of a job it is going to be. Uh, He's said in in numerous interviews that he understands the task at hand, understands the expectations of the university and what they're looking to do. I still feel, I've written in different articles, you know, will they be the number one team? They will be at least anywhere from the top five to the top 15 all year, depending on how wins and losses go, because the rankings do fluctuate week to week based on how teams do. I would say by the end of the year, though, you should see them at least somewhere in the top 15, because there is still too much talent here for them not to be, you know, one of the best teams in the country. You do lose some star players like Jalen Howell, but other players have had to step up. Claire Robbins is back for her fifth year. And then you have Jenna Nyswanger, who, again, you have an interview with, which, again, is coming up in a little bit. So be sure to keep it here for that. But Jenna Nyswanger is going to be a real X factor for this team. Uh, she told us in the interview, which you'll hear in a bit, that she's going to be moving back to her center attacking midfield role. And I think that's going to be huge for this team in terms of what they can create. Not only that, but they have a deadly striker combo up top with Beata Olsen and Judy Brown. So Olsen is is from Sweden, who transferred from the University of Florida, gave them a huge lift last year, and then Judy Brown has been getting invaluable experience with the Jamaican national team. And, you know, if she can get to double-digit goals this year, she was able to get goals and assists, really help out the team. If she can get to double-digit goals then there's no reason why Florida State isn't going to be, you know, a tough, tough team to contend with week in and week out. So Florida State, you'd have to put them at number one as the defending champs. We don't know how it's going to go initially with head coach Brian Penske. But again, Florida State's, you got to put them at number one. For me, number two, I really feel like North Carolina, you know, we talk about them every year. It's been more than a decade since Anson Dorrance and the Tar Heels have won a national title. But they lost in the first round of the NCAA tournament last year as well. And this team will be hungrier than ever. Only two seniors were on last year's team. They're bringing everybody back. Emily Murphy uh, was leading the way up top. You have Macy Bell, one of the best defenders in the nation at the back. I think North Carolina is going to be in that top five again all year. You better get used to that because they're just that good. They bring back everybody. We know how strong the ACC is going to be. So expect to see North Carolina, if not at number two, somewhere in that top five. Coming in at number three, the Arkansas Razorbacks. The Razorbacks have been really building to this moment. They've been the best team out of the SEC for the last couple of years, and they will absolutely be near the top of the conference this year as well. You know, they lost one of their best players to the NWSL and Caleb McKeon, but they have another amazing player in Anna Pogil, who was an All-American last year, and expectations will be high. Had 16 goals and 6 assists in 2021, and if Pogil can hit the 20-goal plateau, this team is going to be as dangerous as ever, with her probably being a Herman Trophy candidate. That's She is absolutely one of the players to keep an eye on for the Herman Trophy best player in college soccer. So I think, remember that name. 
they're not the same program that North Carolina or Florida State is, but they're building towards that. And a landmark year would really help, you know, the program take that step towards that. So I think Arkansas, again, remember that name, Anapojo. TCU, we got to go to the Big 12. We've, we've talked about the ACC. We've talked about uh, the SEC, but now we move to the Big 12. TCU won the Big 12 last year, followed that up with a Sweet 16 appearance in the NCAA tournament. And again, they're bringing back a ton of their key contributors from last year. Messiah Bright, their upfront uh, leading goal scorer, Cameron Lancaster, and Gracie Bryan as well, coming off double-digit assists. So they're balanced. They can beat you in a variety of different ways. TCU is a program building towards a record-setting year, and they have a great chance to really build on what they did. Uh, last year so i think they're going to be in the top of the big 12 expect them to be in the top 10 if not top five as a result this team might be a bit of a surprise for some because they aren't even in the top 25 right now but west virginia to me came in with high expectations and underperformed in conference play they're still bringing back some key names jordan brewster aj rodriguez julian valorand to build on what head coach nikki iso brown has been creating in morgantown it's a certain culture and a certain mindset that they've built out there. And I really feel as though they're going to be a team by the time the end of the year is done, you're going to know who they are. So, again, keep an eye on the West Virginia Mountaineers. I think this team is being forgotten about a little bit and will give TCU a run for their money for the Big 12 crown. Next up, we have USC. Uh, naturally... Their head coach left. Keaton McAlpine made a huge move, left the sunny Los Angeles, California for Athens, Georgia to take over at the University of Georgia. Uh, and so what did the Trojans go and do? They went to their rival and hired UCLA assistant Jane Aliconis to take over. And Aliconis has an impressive resume and takes over a supremely talented team that loses Savannah DeMello, who we can see is having a great rookie year for racing Louisville. Penelope Hawking also transferred, so that is a big, big loss for them. But they have one of the best players in the nation in Croy Bethune, and you have Simone Jackson supporting her up front. Their offense is what's going to be as dangerous as ever. Defensively, we have yet to see exactly how great they're going to be. I do think they are a top 10, top 15 team, even with the head coach leaving. I think Croy Bethune, again, keep an eye on her. Because that is a player to watch, not just for now, but for the future. 110% going to be a star one day. You can, you better believe that. Book it here. Uh, she is going to be really, really good. So again, remember her. USC figures to be, I feel, again, in this top 10, top 15 range. Moving on. Tennessee. So, you know, Brian Penske was just at Tennessee. Longtime assistant Joe Kurt takes over. Considering he's been with the school since 2007, he knows his way around Knoxville. He inherits an incredibly deep team with barely any seniors. The top five players are all returning. Taylor Huff burst onto the scene as a freshman of the year, you know, in the SEC. And then to support Jada Thomas in the attack. They finished 11th in the polls. They're bringing back everyone. It's hard to see to me how they're not going to be in the top 10 by the time the season's over. I think it's going to be Arkansas and Tennessee as the top two teams in the SEC. Again, this one was a little bit of a surprise, but I wanted to have fun with this. I didn't just want to go based off of running down what the preseason polls have, because again, the preseason polls, 
when you look at the beginning of the year to how things end, it's not going to go that way. It, those top 10 teams are not going to be the 10 teams that you see at the end of the year. It's not going to go that way. So for me, I think a team that you can keep an eye on is Washington State. The Cougars uh, have had to wait for so long you know, to kind of burst out of the shadow of USC and UCLA. And now that Amanda Cromwell's out from US, U, UCLA, excuse me, and Keaton McAlpine's gone from USC, the, the door is open. The door is open for Washington State to, to take over. They've been building towards this, like I've said. Elise Bennett, one of their stars from, you know, last year, is doing big things for the current right now, has already scored a bunch of goals. But the rest of the core remains. Grayson Lynch, Alyssa Gray will lead the way, along with the key transfer in Enzi Broussard from West Virginia. That's a big loss for Coach Nikki O'Brown, but a huge get for Washington State. I think the Cougars will set a high bar for themselves. They've really got a chance to do something special this year and build on everything that they have worked towards in these last couple of years to really push UCLA and USC out as like the top team. Stanford's in that picture as well. But I think Washington State uh, is is a team to really keep an eye on that's flying under the radar. Last two teams here, Pepperdine. Pepperdine finished, you know, 13th in the United Soccer Coaches Poll, one of the best seasons in school history. They have one of the best one-two punches in Joel Anderson and Tori Waldeck. Got the chance to watch them live last year, and they're the real deal. All right, they are the real deal. They do play in a slightly less competitive West Coast Conference, but again, that's the conference Santa Clara is in. They're still playing tough enough competition where you have two or three ranked teams, uh, so they should be able to dominate, rack up some wins, and I think that's what's going to get them into the top ten. As long if they can beat Santa Clara as well, that's going to be highly competitive matchup. They have a chance to propel themselves into the top 10. So I think Pepperdine, another surprising team here that a lot of people won't expect to hear. But I absolutely like them a lot. Uh, again, flying under the radar. Last team from the Big Ten. You have Notre Dame. Added some outstanding players to the transfer portal to bolster what is an already strong roster. You have a trio of Olivia Wingate, Maddie Mercado, and Corbin Albert. They're already a top 15 team. Then you add Anna Rico from Pittsburgh, who is basically one of their best players, and Christina Lynch from defending champions Florida State. And this team has a little bit of everything now. Four graduate students, they're going to be the most experienced. They're not going to be afraid of anyone. They are deep. The ACC is tough, but this conference usually has three or four teams in the top 10 all year. And Notre Dame, I think, figures to be one of them. Virginia and Duke, of course, I know it's a bit of a surprise to not have them in this top 10, uh, I do think they will all, you know, be in and out of this top 10, top 15 all year. But I just wanted to highlight, you know, some of the other programs, since it is the same schools year in and year out. Don't hate me, Virginia Duke fans. I do think, again, they're going to be very competitive this year as well. But just wanted to highlight some other, some other programs that are on the rise as the gap is starting to close between some of the powerhouse schools. Now you're starting to see more parity. You're starting to see more upsets like what we saw with UC Irvine, you know, taking out UCLA, like we saw with North Carolina losing in the first round of the tournament. So a lot of these teams, you know, are, are going to be different. They're going to, there's a new style and it's going to be so much fun to watch how this year unfolds. So again, that's kind of like our way, our way too early top 10 for the year, even though we are in the preseason. 
It's going to be very interesting to see how things pan out. Of course, as we mentioned, Brian Penske taking over at Florida State, that's going to be one of the biggest uh, moves of the offseason and every and one of the things that everyone's going to be keeping an eye on to see how they adjust to the ACC. In other college news, a huge, huge move made that I'm really upset about. I'm not going to lie. Pac-12 conference realignment. It's mo- it's because of football, unfortunately, not soccer. It's because of football. But USC and UCLA are going to be moving to the Big Ten in 2024. The geography doesn't matter anymore, man. Like, what are we doing? <laughs> what are we doing? Uh, USC and UCLA are moving. Like, can you imagine that? The Big Ten is all entirely Midwest schools for the most part and East Coast now. So you're talking about, can you imagine USC and UCLA having to go play uh, Rutgers and like Notre Dame and and all of these schools? Like, yeah, it makes for more exciting matchups, but the Pac-12 literally is the Pacific 12. <laughs> like... Like, it's meant to be West Coast teams. It just drives me up the wall why we can't, like, why we have to be so focused on more money. And it's got nothing to do with the women's soccer realm. It's got everything to do with college football. And that's the bigger, that's the bigger problem here. You know, from a football perspective, USC and UCLA haven't been on that level. And and I think the Pac-12 commissioner in that, in that realm dropped the ball and allowed for something like this to happen. Uh, so it is a huge deal for the Big Ten to be, you know, you're talking about Michigan, Ohio State, those types of schools, and then you're going to have them playing USC and UCLA at least once a year. Kind of just really changes the landscape, changes the game for everyone. So we still got, you know, two years left of enjoying what we have right now, but still the money grab really changes everything. And USC and UCLA. It will make it, it will be fun. Don't get me wrong. There's going to be some fun matchups that we'd never thought of before. But it's like, what's going to happen to the Pac-12 now? You know, outside of Stanford and Washington State, in terms of soccer, who else is really there to to pick up the torch for the Pac-12? Do they look to add two smaller mid-majors uh, to their conference to try and bolster what they have? Because you're talking about the Pac-12 possibly falling apart. If these two schools leave, they're the two biggest schools in California. They're like, they make so much money for the conference. They do so much for, for attracting attention to the conference. So USC, UCLA being gone is very, very unfortunate. Um, again, still two more years, but yeah, I'm, I'm not happy about this. I hate conference realignment so much. I would just wish we could keep the schools where they're meant to be geographically and keep the conferences that way. But Hey, capitalism, money, will always reign supreme. There's also been rule changes to the college soccer season, which are going to be very, very exciting. So, for the regular season, overtime has been eliminated, meaning if a game is tied after regulation 90 minutes, it it will end in a tie. Ties are going to be big now uh, during this year, because previously teams played two 10-minute overtime periods, in a sudden victory golden goal format and if neither team scored the game ended in a tie so you did see ties last year but we're going to see a whole lot more this year again for health and fitness this is great that they don't have to play those extra 20 minutes unnecessarily just end it there and then when 
when it really counts, when it really matters in conference tournaments and NCAA postseason games, the sudden victory component has been eliminated. So sudden death, no longer there. Teams will play two 10-minute overtime periods instead. And also, when a substitution is made by the winning team in the last five minutes of the second overtime, the game clock will stop. So that, again, right, makes it for a very interesting last five minutes of the game. You're trailing by a goal. You need every single second possible. So that rule is is really great. Uh, so, yeah, sudden victory, sudden, sudden death, no longer a part of college soccer, which means we're going to see a lot more penalty shootouts. I think that's kind of what you could tell the NCAA wanted to shift, to shift more towards that for probably for TV ratings and just for overall excitement for more neutral fans as opposed to the actual fans that have to sit through the penalty shootout. Like, that would be not fun. (laughs) And lastly, video review, VAR. The panel approved expanding video review to include whether a foul occurred inside or outside the penalty area. So... (laughs) we are opening pandora's box it is official we have var in more ways than one um yeah inside or outside the penalty area i think is a good line to draw it's not necessarily reviewing whether it's a penalty or not i guess in in some cases it is right because you're inside outside the penalty area but anything that's inside the box wholeheartedly will not be reviewed so that's that's a good thing i think we need to slow our roll here when it comes to VAR at the college level and trying to have it universally everywhere. There aren't enough camera angles, right, for this to be the most accurate system that we use. So again, video review is good, but how much of it to what degree that we use it is also very important. All right, it is time for our second interview. Again, we had a nice sit down with Jenna Nyswanger of Florida State, center attacking midfielder who is heading into her senior year. Enjoy, guys. You know, with uh, Jenna Nyswanger, uh, midfielder, defender, all-purpose player for Florida State University. Jenna, how are you feeling heading into your senior year? Um, really excited to be going into my fourth and final year at Florida State. Um, it's been great being back with the team and seeing the old players again and meeting all the new players. This preseason has definitely been short, but it's been full of growth and learning. And I think we're all just really excited to get started and play some great games against some great opponents. Absolutely. And do you and the rest of the team uh, miss Coach Gregorian, or have you in the locker room moved on and really tried to have a focus on this year? Um, I think we're really grateful for the time that we had with Mark. Um, one of the things he always emphasized about why Florida state was so different is because we're treated like professionals and part of being a professional is dealing with the uncontrollables such as manager changes. So it's part of the game. And um, we're fortunate that we have a great new coach stepping in Brian Penske and he's been great to us so far. You just mentioned coach Penske and how have things been going with him as, as the team gets ready for this year? I guess what's, is there a difference in like coaching styles between him and coach playing? Um, as I said, it's been a lot, this preseason has been a lot about learning and growing and that's learning about the players, learning about the new staff, the new staff, learning about us. Um, Brian's been so great coming in. He's super humble and attentive to our wants and needs and he's caring. He's 
made his mark on us all so far and it's very positive. Um, so I'm excited for this season and I'm, we're really lucky to have him as a coach here at Florida state. Awesome. So you're a very versatile player. You played all over the pitch during your time at Florida state, but what is your favorite position to play on the field? Um, I love playing attacking center mid. It's my favorite spot. Um, I feel like involved in every play when I'm there. And I do think it's easier to have the whole 360 of the field around you. So as I'm glad to have started as a freshman in the wing position, but I'm really happy to be playing attacking center mid now for Florida State. So that's kind of, you know that that's your role going into this year as opposed to having to play at the back and, and in the midfield now that you're moving up front. That's your set role this year, you feel? Yeah, it is. And um, if they need me anywhere throughout the season, um, I can go there. But right now I'm happy playing attacking center mid, and that's where I think Brian's going to want me. Awesome. That's exciting. We're excited to see yeah. you. Uh, so what are some of the biggest improvements you feel you've made this offseason? And do you have any favorite drills, exercises that you use to improve as you go through? Um, one thing I really wanted to focus on this offseason was my shooting. And um, just gaining confidence and getting some reps in, um, simplifying my technique, I think, and just making it something more clinical because I tend to have overthought my shots and everything. Um, one of the drills that one of the coaches here at Florida State taught me was just to do like simple reps. Um, practicing shooting for me isn't about doing all these like crazy runs and tricks before I shoot. It's mainly just like me and the ball and having a touch out and like shooting and just working on my technique. So I think for people that want to work on their shooting first, just nail the basics and do simple shooting like that. And then progress into different movements and different skills before you shoot, but mainly just get the technique down first. That's what I've been working on and I've seen a lot of growth. So I'm happy about it. That's awesome. And you've mentioned in, in previous interviews that um, it is your goal to play professionally that you want to go to the league. So, you know, if you obviously you have the draft process, but if there was a team that you would like to go to ideally that you feel you'd be a great fit for, what team would that be and why? Um, I actually haven't decided yet if I will be entering the draft. Mm. I'm also um, looking into playing in Europe as well. So I think it's hard for me to decide on like an end of cell team that I want to go to, but I, in Europe, I've always wanted to play for champions league, league level team. So mm. I think, just working towards that goal of mine is really big for me right now. Cool. I don't have a specific team really. I'm just open to anywhere that will have me. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Cause yeah, I mean, there's so many teams out in Europe and you feel like there's a different style of play that would also help you develop your game in a different way compared to having been in America this entire time. Um, I think just finding a team wherever they are, that is more um, possession based and technical, like, and wants technical players in the midfield. Um, I think that's a team that I'll benefit from the most, and I can give the best to them as well. So, you know, you're now, as a senior, one of the more experienced players who's been around the program, been a part of national title winning teams. Have you been asked to take on more of a leadership role? And is that more vocally or more leading by example? Um, I think my leadership role on the team kind of just came about. Um, it was obvious after Jalen leaving that we needed to have a more vocal presence on the field. And um, I'm not quite as vocal as Jalen, but I'm trying to like work on that. 
And so just trying to lead by example, but also having more of a vocal presence on the field is going to be really important, especially because with the manager change and everything, um, I think it's just important to have these like strong leadership qualities right now amongst the team. And we do have a lot of great players with great leadership qualities, both vocally and leading by example. And I think it creates a more comfortable environment for everyone when they do have people like leading them and helping them along the way. Right. And how would you say this year team chemistry is going into this year compared to last year? Um, I think something Mark has always helped the team with is a strong, a strong team chemistry in the way he's recruited people. And I think Brian's done the same. Um, Brian brought in another girl, um, a transfer, and she's already like um, fit right into the team. So I think our, tem- our team chemistry is really strong. We do a lot of work on team chemistry, which I think is really important. I believe you can't win a national championship without having strong team chemistry. And our team chemistry is looking really good. Um, everyone has, everyone, like, we always try to, like, focus on positivity and getting the best out of each other and ourselves every day. And I think that's something that hasn't left. So what are some of the things that you guys do in order to make sure that you guys are always on the same page? Is it, like, team dinners? Is it going out off the pitch? Like, what are some things that you guys like to do? Um, in preseason, we have team lunch and team dinner every day, which I think is like a great opportunity to, it's more of an informal environment for people to get to know each other. Um, we do, uh, we hold meeting, a meeting at the beginning of the semester to outline our goals and responsibilities for the team. I think that's just a good way to, again, like outline what we expect team culture to be like and give the freshmen an idea of, um, what it's like to be a player here. Um, we have meetings as well throughout the season, just working on building team chemistry, like um, trust and building trust and dealing with conflict and stuff like that. Mm-hmm, for sure. And you're, um, you know, on the national stage and, and visibly like everyone can see you now. What kind do you consider yourself to be a role model for a lot of the younger girls out there who are looking up to you? And what kind of example do you want to set as a player in person? Um, I don't necessarily know if I consider myself a role model, but I hope to think I'm setting like a pretty good example for everyone out there. Um, I think I just try to show myself as like a hard worker and I care a lot about the sport and improving myself and my teammates and doing well for the team. So I think that's something that I try to show on the field because that's how I feel in my heart. So hopefully that comes across. Absolutely. And last question, if you could say anything to the fans of Florida State going into this year in terms of what they could expect, uh, what would it be? Um, I think at the end of the day, we're still Florida State and we still have an amazing team and that's not going to change anything. Brian's a great coach. And like I said, we're lucky to have him. So our the Florida State's fans have are one of the best fans of the country and we have amazing people show up to our games every every game um showing their support for us rain or shine so i think we're just going to need that again this year um and their support is always so important for us whether it's home or away games having them and seeing them it gives us so much energy so we appreciate them and we really need them this year to come out again that was jenna nice of florida state really interesting to see her talk about how the team of course 
Mrs. Coach Mark Rikorian, but again, they're still all business, how they want it to be run like a professional team and how they're all ready to go. Other thing was uh, her willingness to also not just either go to the NWSL if given the opportunity, but I think looking to develop her game more in Europe and play in the Champions League, I think that's really cool to hear that perspective, whereas you think a lot of players who are here in the States might want to just go straight to the NWSL. But again, that's not the case. I think players see Europe as such a viable option for the beautiful game that, you know, it's hard to deny, hard to deny it when you see the infrastructure and how it's being pumped in at the Euros. We just saw England win the infrastructure that's being put into place there everywhere around Europe and how great of a competition we had through the quarterfinal onwards. So, yeah, Jenna Nicewanger, it was great again to have her back on the podcast. We've actually had her on before, uh, but to have her back on and talking about her experiences and, and what it's going to be like uh, this year at Florida State, I think is is going to be really enjoyable again to keep an eye on them and head coach Brian Brian Penske and see how far they go. All right, time to switch gears to the NWSL and Europe. But first, the NWSL, like we mentioned, Mark Rikorian ending up as the GM of the Washington Spirit. A huge move for one of the most respected coaches in in American soccer right now. I, I think it's hard. You'd be hard-pressed to find anyone who has a bad thing to say about him and what he's built at Florida State or what he did build before leaving. I think what's interesting is he's not it's not a like-for-like swap. He's not taking over the head coaching job at the Washington Spirit. He's going to be the GM. And so his ability to bring in top talent from his time at Florida State, the way he was able to recruit internationally and bring players into his program, you're going to think that he's going to have that same ability to do that at, at the Washington Spirit as well in terms of being able to bring in not just the American homegrown talent but the international talent as well. Chris Ward still stays at the helm, and I think everyone involved, whether it's Michelle Kang and ownership, Chris Ward and Mark Corian, they all seem to be on the same page in terms of what they want to build and the type of excellence they want to create at the organization. With that being said, it is a big move. There's a reason why he's being brought in, because right now, when you look at the Washington spirit, you're talking about one win in like 16 games, like... One win in 16 games, nine draws, okay? Unheard of for a defending, you know, former champ from a couple years ago to be this far off from where they were. And Ashley Hatch is still scoring goals. Ashley Sanchez is looking incredible. And yet still they have one win. And that one win was literally the first week of the season. They have not won since may guys they have blown multiple two goal leads they've also had to come from behind which isn't ideal but they've blown multiple two goal leads in games where they should have i I believe it's three games where you're dropping points so even then nine points still has them in the playoff hunt but now they're not you know they're they're starting to fall off the pace a little bit which was a huge shock that team with that roster again should not be having results like this, but it's almost like a statistical anomaly. Like, you're not going to see very many teams have one win in nine draws. Uh, that's just bizarre for a team that plays the, the style that they play. So it's a, it's a, it's a big shock to see that. 
There is still plenty of time. That's the beauty of this league, the parity. It is the first time we have shifted to this many teams. So it's made it even more competitive. You know, when the Spirit did go on their championship run, they did fly under the radar and kind of sneak back into the playoff picture late on in the year. So if they can make that late push now, they still have a chance. It is not over by any means. We're down to like the last third of the year, not even. You know, we've only got so many games left. They are in in all likelihood going to have to win out if they want to get into the playoffs. It is not over, but uh, you look at Mark Rikorian coming in, expectations will be high and it's going to be very intriguing to see how this team builds more assets through the draft and through the recruiting process internationally so again keep an eye on the washington spirit it is a bit of a funky year i think you could almost you know chalk this off as a a different you know anomaly type of year where it's just bizarre but yeah the spirit Again, are, are still super talented, still have Trinity Rodman and, and all those great players there, along with the veteran leadership at the back. So I don't think, you know, they're going anywhere per se. I think it's just been a crazy year, and that's just how the NWSL is. Anyone can be beaten on any given day. Moving on, Scott Parkinson out at Gotham FC. They both decided to mutually part ways. Uh, from what we've been hearing you know, although it didn't work out coaching-wise, Scott Parkinson still is a great person, which is also just as important, right? We talked about the toxicity and players and coaches not really getting along and the abuse that has happened at the hand of coaches, and it does not seem like Scott Parkinson was at any point like that. And so for him to be revered in all those different ways uh, in terms of how he treated people, I think is still huge, and I think that leaves the door open for him to absolutely get another job in the NWSL somewhere should he want that or to go somewhere else. I'm sure he will get another job somewhere else, but it is a bit of a shock to not let him finish out the year, um, even though I'm sure yet yeah, playoffs were the expectations for them. And so to not be in that situation has got to be tough for the Gotham supporters and everyone involved with the club. Hugh Menzies takes over as the interim manager, and it is the first black head coach in the history of the NWSL. It is a historic day for the league, and hopefully not you know, the last for a long time. I would hope that we don't go on a big gap where we don't hire anyone else. You know, We need to make this more of a common theme. Um, Menzies will be the interim manager for the remainder of the year. Hopefully, if they do well enough, and who knows, maybe even work their way into the playoff picture, that interim tag will be removed and he will get the opportunity to be there full-time. He has most notably achieved the 2018 CONCACAF Women's Coach of the Year Award after helping the Jamaica Women's National Team qualify for the 2019 World Cup, which was the country's first-ever World Cup appearance. Naturally, that is a huge, huge deal, and that is the type of thing that will get you hired somewhere else. So I think the way he led the reggae girls will give him a huge opportunity and a ton of credibility in that Gotham FC locker room um, that he's going to need in order to lead that group because it is an experienced group of players. There's not a ton of rookies out there. Uh, That is an experienced group of veterans that can ball. So excited to see what Coach Hugh Menzies does the rest of the year with Gotham FC. Scott Parkinson out, Hugh Menzies in. The other interesting things that I've noticed 
during this season is new players in, in, in new places making a huge impact. So right off the bat, Rachel Daly out after the Euros, naturally winning at England. I don't know if she told Houston that uh, she wasn't going to be coming back or if it was a mutual parting of ways, but she's gone to Aston Villa. And so what do they do? They go and trade for a younger Brit who is on the rise and a future star or star already in Ebony Salmon for me. I mean, just tearing up the NWSL still netted a hat trick the other week and continues to just score goals at a high rate for Houston, filling in that role tremendously. Houston has a knack for the trades and the acquisitions that to help them. They're great at identifying, identifying talent that way. So Ebony Salmon's doing great things already for Houston. And you can expect her to be scoring a ton of goals already. They're in second in the table right now. And they're in a great spot to finally get their first ever playoff appearance in club history. Because they still haven't done it yet. So this might finally be the year. They've, they've shored things up at the back a little bit. You know, with the Katie Nodden addition uh, a couple years ago. Uh, so hopefully this is the year, guys. This is the year for Houston, right? Let's take a look at the table. They are in second right now. Um, there are, you know, two other teams tied with them, San Diego and Kansas City, all on 25 points. So that could be subject to change. Still a couple more games to go. But Houston, please do not choke this away. Like, please, I want to see you guys in the playoffs. I've been talking about it for years, for years, honestly, back from the days when Kaylee Ojai was there. That's when I've been talking about Houston making a playoff appearance. Like, they've always had the talent. Can they bring the best out of themselves and get over the finish line? That's what's going to be fun to watch. Another player who, again, I mentioned a couple episodes ago, the CC Kaiser trade just went so far under the radar. Racing Louisville just let her walk, essentially, for, like, cash considerations and an international spot. Got nothing tangible back for her. Okay, and I understand um, you look at the numbers from when she was at Louisville. Seven matches, no goals, two assists. But, but like I said, this is a this is a baller. This is a player capable of producing. And the second she moved to Kansas City, guess what? Eight matches, five goals, and an assist already in eight matches since moving. Normally, you're thinking, hey, when players move to a new team, you got to learn. A new system, you got to learn how to play with new teammates and team chemistry is an issue, but not for CC Kaiser. She has come in very happily to, to be back closer to home and is balling out. Balling. Five goals and an assist. And again, as a result, look at the standings. Kansas City is firmly in fourth right now, right behind San Diego and Houston. Portland is the cream of the crop right now. No one has, even though they only have a three-point lead over Houston, they are the cream of the crop. Sophia Smith is probably going to win MVP at this rate with her goal-scoring record, right? Uh, the only, not the only, excuse me, the third player in NWSL history, all black women, by the way, to score double-digit goals in uh, two different NWSL seasons. You have Crystal Dunn as well. So, again, Sophia Smith is going to win MVP. I don't think there's any question about that at, at this stage based on how things are looking in the standings. Kansas City, again, firmly in that fourth spot right now. That trade that they made midseason, um, Haley Mace has been doing great things. I've talked about her a couple times, but CC Kaiser has been a difference maker for Kansas City, and you can see that. 
clearly as they are still in the playoff hunt as well. A huge turnaround that would be for them as an organization, considering they were bottom last year or near the bottom and have really rebuilt themselves in a really fun way, which has been really cool to see. Last but not least, Diana Ordonez, another player who we've talked about after the draft. It was a great pick by the North Carolina Courage. You needed to replace some of the star power. Lynn Williams is gone now. And Diana Ordonez has stepped up in a big, big way. Eight goals now. An NWSL record for a rookie in one season. And again, not surprising. When she gets the service, she is going to score. Flat out. We mentioned that many, many times. You could go back, listen to the tapes. We knew what she was about at the University of Virginia. Going back to her freshman year, she was tearing it up over there. So she's been ready for this moment, and you can see that they have their new striker of the future to go alongside Dabinia and Caroline uh, and all those other players who they have out there. I think North Carolina is still building, right? It's kind of shocking to see them at the bottom of the table, but they still have a couple games in hand, okay? 12, 12 matches played. Gotham has also only played 12 matches. Whereas other teams have played 15 to 16. So if if you're talking about winning two to three games out of those four, your season can change dramatically as a result of that. Same with Angel City. 13 matches played, 18 points. Again, two wins moves you into the playoff picture, right? Two wins moves you out of the seventh spot and in into the top six. So anyone, again, is still in it. The beauty of the league, right? Orlando is such a surprise. Racing Louisville in that mid-table spot, ninth, kind of where you'd expect them to be. Orlando, though, in eighth, Seb Hines and then that staff, you know, two wins and three draws in their last five. They're just somehow finding a way to get it done, uh, finding a way. But yeah, going back to what Dan Ordonez, they played in a thriller also against uh, the Kansas City Current, and that's how the Current are now into the playoff picture with that 4-3 win an incredible incredible game so that's again as we get towards the end of the year these matches are going to get incredibly competitive there aren't many you know u.s women's national team games there will be in october selling out we talked about that in the scott juniper interview where it's going to sell out at Wembley. It already has sold out excuse me u.s women's national team versus england what a showdown that's going to be but again, until then, it seems like all the stars are going to be here in the meantime. So no worries there. Prepare yourselves for this final stretch because it's going to be a ton of fun to see how the, the playoff picture shakes out. Because the table, again, is not going to look anywhere close to where it looks like now. Anywhere close. We'd be remiss to, of course, mention England shaking the curse, lifting the curse off their backs, and getting that done. What an incredible story that is. Uh, <laughs> the whole Chloe Kelly taking the shirt off, oh, uh, homage to Brandy Chastain, all of it. What a moment. Everything really fell into place for them. And just wanted to give a little bit of a, a two cents on just how great it was to watch them finally end this curse ironically the men couldn't do it but the women did and that's what makes it even better to be honest with you that the men who have struggled for so long have come so close so many times were unable to do it but england the women in front of all those people at in that wembley stadium what an incredible moment i mean chills to be quite honest with you uh to experience that and 
for for those people there, I'm sure it must have been bonkers, insane. The atmosphere was incredible. Uh, but even just watching it on the TV live, just amazing, amazing stuff. All right, last but not least, we're going to get into the Ballon d'Or nominees. Pretty long list here. We've got 20 nominees. Just going to do a quick run through. Selma Bacha of France played for Lyon, one of the best teams in the world, won the Champions League. Wholeheartedly deserves to be there. She's electric on the ball. Aitana Bonmati, a big, played a big role in Barcelona's perfect season in La Liga. And then you have uh, what she did for Spain as well, because she really had to step things up in the Euros once you know Jenny Hermoso and Alexia Putellas went down. So Aitana Bonmati wholeheartedly deserves to be on this list. Millie Bright, one of the best defenders in the world for Chelsea and for England. Of course, they just won the Euros. Wholeheartedly deserves to be on this list. Lucy Bronze as well, defender. Was exposed at times, not going to lie, during the Euros. Uh, Sweden had many opportunities to take advantage earlier on in in their matchup. But, again, that's still... She got signed by Barcelona, so I think that tells you everything you need to know about what Barcelona, one of the best clubs in the world, feels about her. So, again, Lucy Bronze was going to make this list. Kadiatu Diani for, for France and for PSG, again... Got the chance to watch her really live at the Euros. And again, when when they needed a goal, when they were trailing Germany, it was Diani who created that moment of magic. So again, whenever you need her to come up with something, Diani and Marie Antoinette Katoto, two of the best that PSG have to offer, uh, that's what makes this PSG Lyon rivalry so good they're really starting to to close the gap a little bit they're starting to get more players on their side of things to make it closer Lyon is still Lyon but PSG is when they have players like Diani and Katoto who again both deserve to be on this this short list Christian Endler I believe the only goalkeeper on this list uh you could put any of the NWSL keepers on this list, to be quite honest with you. I feel like they're of that level, but Christian Endler always gets that respect. Leon's goalkeeper, one of the best in the world, if not the best, uh, making the shortlist. Ada Hegerberg, Leon, Norway. We know what she's done, what she's done, has won the award in the past. So again, she will likely be one of the favorites to win it, although I'm not sure she has the numbers this time around to really back up. For winning it all. Sam Kerr, on the other hand, I think is really got to be one of the favorites for this award. For Chelsea, winning multiple trophies, what she's done cannot be put into into words, just her impact and what she can do striking-wise. She just scores goals, man. It's, it's, there's nothing else to it. She just knows how to put the ball in the goal, period. Really cool to see Katarina Macario make the list for her to be rewarded for the year that she had unfortunately ended the year with an acl tear but finally her breakout year has arrived there was a lot of worry how good is she gonna be can she do it well we saw it in spades she can ball no doubt beth mead another well-deserved nomination here for england again they don't win the euros without beth mead plain and simple you need her in so many different ways so for her and for Arsenal, just had a phenomenal year overall for both club and country. Should be one of the top five. Vivian Miedema, uh, Holland and Arsenal. 
know what she can do. Similar to Sam Kerr, you put her in that class. They're basically goal scorers from any which way. Their movement, their ability to finish from anywhere. Uh, both of them are so, so good. So Vivian Medium, of course, deserves to be here. Alex Morgan. You know, normally Americans get put on the list and it's kind of been like, oh, you don't deserve to be here. Alex Morgan wholeheartedly deserves to be on the list this year because a resurgence in San Diego. I mean, what a year she's having approaching, you know, breaking her uh, goal scoring record in the NWSL. Like she's approaching that. There's no doubt that, like, San Diego is in the top four because of her in the NWSL. So Alex Morgan wholeheartedly deserves to make it. And what a comeback story it would be if she were to win the award. She probably won't because there's a lot of European bias on this list, as you can see. But because she's only one of two players from America. Yes. But still, uh, props to Alex Morgan for an incredible, incredible season. Lena Oberdorf, Germany. She's one of the best young stars in the world, uh, defensive-minded and tough as nails, not going to back down from anybody, played a huge role in Germany getting to the final, uh, if they don't have her holding things down in the midfield, doing the dirty work, they don't get there, so Lena Oberdorf also balling for VFL Wolfsburg as well, so that's a really good Wolfsburg side because of how much German talent they have, always going to be in the Champions League discussion as well. Asiat Oshoala for Nigeria and FC Barcelona. Love to see this selection here. Her talent level is just on another level. Like, she's just that good. Uh, she really is just that good. So, uh, give her that respect, please. Uh, she's worthy. I don't know if she's going to win the award, but absolutely worthy of being on the list. Alexandra Pop, coming off of phenomenal Euros. Phenomenal, phenomenal Euros. Was just one game away. The fact that she got hurt in the warm-ups... Uh, before the England game, I mean, again, like I said, everything fell into place for England to win the Euros because P for Pop to be missing, getting hurt in the warm-up before the game, I mean, come on. That's like, I don't know what voodoo, curse, whatever you want to call it was put on, <laughs> on that German team, but for your best player to get hurt 15 minutes before the game and warm-ups like that is about as unlucky as it gets. Still, she had an amazing tournament and wholeheartedly deserves to be here. Alexia Pateas, again, sucks that she had to miss out on the Euros. Everyone was devastated, received a ton of support, prayers, well wishes, and still, for the year that they had at FC Barcelona, wholeheartedly, she's going to make this shortlist, won it again. She's also won the award, like I said, so could absolutely win it again. Wendy Renard, as steady as ever. Still, still balling as one of the best center backs in the world. Can't doubt her leadership and her ability, uh, both offensively and defensively. When she's in the box it, on corner kicks, you have to keep an eye on her. Now, the defense she's got on lock. She's got it covered. But watching her impact on set pieces as well, you cannot underestimate that. Fridolina Rolfo, again, didn't get to really highlight it at the Euros just how good of a year they had with FC Barcelona. Didn't get to see her do as much at the Euros, but still great to see a Swedish player. We got a ton of diversity here. A Swedish player make the short list for the Ballon d'Or this time around. And lastly, Trinity Rodman. I think it was more so for 
her performances the year prior rather than this year because this year obviously hasn't been as great for her statistically as it was the year before. And the way that she carried the team through in that finals performance uh, was just a sight to behold. The way that she, her competitive desire, refusal to give up, all that was just on full display. So no hate, uh, but a bit of a surprise to see her on this list for sure. Happy to see her there though. Two Americans on the list out of 20. Not terrible, not great, but still solid list. Much better than last year's list. For sure, much better than last year's list. I will say that. All right, that is all that we have for you guys today. This is episode 52 of Give and Go, and I'm your host, Rotas Badera. Thank you so, so much for making the choice to listen to us at Girls Soccer Network. Again, for all the latest and greatest news, analysis, lifestyle, go to www.girlssoccernetwork.com. Check us out on Instagram at Girls Soccer Network, on Twitter at Girls Soccer Net. And please leave us a review, whether it's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever that is. Leave us a review. Give us feedback. We're always looking to improve, guys. So please let us know what we can do, what content we can have to make this thing even better. So please help us out. Share this. Subscribe to it. Whatever you can do. But please help us out. Thank you guys so much again for tuning in. We will be back soon. Peace.